The last two weeks we talked about Benini. We have categorized the Benini as the uninspired but uncompromised person. The Tzaddik is inspired, the Rosh is compromised, and the Benini is not inspired, he lacks passion, but he's not compromised. I mean, he's in charge. So in, in chapter 15, which is what we're going to be doing today, the al makes a very interesting separation between the tzaddik and the benyani. We know that tzaddik, what's a tzaddik? A tzaddik's in love with God. And the al says that <coughs> inversely proportion, proportional for his, to, in, to his love for God is his hate for evil, for material things. In other words, a person who's truly sensitized to spirituality is disturbed by materialism because it's such a distraction. And the more one is sensitive, the more one is in love with higher things, the more lesser things, lower things, and certainly compromised things disturbs them. So the two dependent, interdependent characteristics, the tzaddik and the tzaddik is an inspired person. He loves God, and therefore things which are against God, he does. He despises, he abhors. And we talked about this at length when we did our tzaddik class, which is, I don't know how many classes ago. The benini also does the right thing, doesn't do the wrong thing, but the benini is uninspired. So Al-Trebbe quotes the Pasuk, and on that basis offers a very, very interesting difference between the tzaddik and the benini. I'm going to skip the techno-speak because it's not that important, and it's techno-speak, so let's, let's get to the, to the meat of it. He says, a tzaddik is called Eved Hashem. That means a servant of God. A benini is called Oived Elikim. One who is in the service of God. <coughs> the word Eved means a slave or a servant. The word Oived means who one is slaving or serving. The difference between these two terms, in other words, is one is describing a person and the other is describing a function, an activity. A person who is defined as a slave is a slave when they're asleep, they're a slave when they're on vacation. They're a slave when they're putting, pushing around their own slaves. It's a condition. When one slaves, when one is engaged in the act of servitude, when they take a break, they're not a servant. So the Alter Rebbe says that tzaddik is called Eved Hashem. It's a condition of servitude. A tzaddik is Eved Hashem when he sleeps. Because it's who he is, not only what he does. The Benini is called Oived Elikim. He's not a servant of God, he's a person. Who's constantly engaged in a struggle with himself to remain in the service of Hashem. So the fact of the matter is, he always serves Hashem. He never fails. He's uncompromised. But because he or she is uninspired, you cannot define them as a person whose condition is service, but as a person whose occupation, whose reality is service. That's between the word Eved and the word Oived. Eved means a servant of, and Eved means one who serves. So based on the nuances of the Pasuk, he says, a tzaddik is called Eved Havaya, Yudke Vavke, which is a higher name of God, the more revealed name of God. And the Benini is called Oived Elakim, one who is engaged in the service of Elakim, which is a lower name of God. In other words, Tzaddikim are different from Benyanim, not in how much they do. But Tzaddikim are different from Benyanim in that the Tzaddik's being Jewish is 
is who they are. The Benyani is being Jewish is what he does. Or in other words, the Tzaddik's being Jewish is one point. He's a Tzaddik. The Benyani is being Jewish is a whole series of activities. I'm Jewish because of what I do. So I'm constantly doing things to maintain my identity as a Jew. The, Benyani is also, the Tzaddik is also constantly doing things. But the Tzaddik is not defined by his actions. The Tzaddik is defined by his identity, what he is. So we've talked about Tzaddik and Benyani. And of course, we've encountered the regular frustration. When you learn the Tanya, you learn about the Benyani, it's very disheartening. Why? Because the Benyani basically means nobody. <laughs> if Benyani is a person who never sins, who never gives in, who's never compromised, whose will always dominates the decisions and the actions that they make, there are very few people who are Benyanim. I mean, we're all compromised. Some of us are compromised about bigger things. Unfortunately, many of us are compromised <coughs> simply out of ignorance, a lack of knowledge. But some of us are compromised because we're weak. Yetzirah wants this, Yetzirah wants that. Sometimes we're given to the Yetzirah. So when you learn about Benyani, there's a frustration. Like I told you, when you teach teenagers, teenagers live in a world where everything has to be fair. Right? You know, that's when you somehow you grow up, you realize that freedom was left in the juvenile. I'm sorry, fairness is in the world of the juveniles. There's no such thing as fairness. Life is what it is. But when you're young, old enough to have opinions and young enough to believe that the world can actually be perfect or that you can make it perfect, you believe in fairness. And the kids tell you, it's not fair. It's not, why is it not fair? Because it's not realistic. It's one of the frustrating experiences in learning the Tanya. And as I've told you, Al-Tarab is not trying to depress us. Al-Tarab is trying to be honest with us. And instead of talking to us on a level of compromise, saying, well, you're a pretty good guy anyway, Al-Tarab says, let me tell you the truth. And you try to fit into it. And last week, near the end of last week's class, I made what is a very, very, very important point in dealing with this question of, uh, it's too difficult, it's not fair, I cannot be a Benyani. Because the Alter Rebbe says, and I'm using my own words a little bit, that there's two concepts. One is called the Madrega of Benyani, the level of Benyani. And the second is called the Mida of Benyani, the, 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 the measure of a Benyani. Which means what Benyanim do. The difference is, to be on the level of a Benyani means to be incredibly locked in. Even though Benyanim are not always inspired, they're inspired only intermittently when they daven, as we discussed at length in several of the last classes, last two classes. But a real Benyani is locked in. They're really connected. They're really tuned in. Like I told you the stories. It was a Yid, his name was Rabbi Solneach. He was a Talmud in Lubavitch. My sister is married to one of his grandchildren. My sister has a, a Solneach herself. This is Solneach Agod, Solneach Ulinitsky. He was a very, very big Chosid. So I, I think I told you the story last week that when he was drafted to the Russian army, he went into the Rebbe. That was the custom. Because they didn't want to go to the Russian army because they couldn't exactly be Jewish in the Russian army. And the Russian army did not exactly love Jews. So he went into the Rebbe Rashab. The Rebbe Rashab told him to go to a certain city and to meet a Jew by the name of Disna. Yitzchok from the city of Disna. And he told him these words. You'll meet this Jew. You'll marry his daughter. And he'll help you with the draft. Anyway, he travels to the city and he knocks on the door of this elderly Jew, this big chassid. He knocks on the door and says, the Rebbe told me I should come to you. 
I should marry your daughter and you should help me with the draft. And the guy said, excuse me? <laughs> you run that by me one more time? Well, <laughs> the Rebbe said, I should marry your daughter. Who are you? I don't, I don't even know your name. So, um, I'm just following orders. This is what the Rebbe said. So the end of the story was that Rabbi Solneach's parents and his future wife's parents traveled together to Lubavitch. They went into the Rebbe together, the four of them. And the Rebbe you sent me a book, you tell me, my daughter, who is he? So there was a whole nego, the Rebbe made a shidduch. That's the long, that's the short version of the story. He was very, very involved. He, he smoothed out all the rough edges and he made the shidduch. And um, the Mechutin, the, the daughter of the, Kala, the father of the Kala, asks the Rebbe, what kind of a boy is he? So he says these words. He says, when he sits in a bedroom, in a room, by himself, and nobody is around, and nobody's walking in, he's also afraid of God. That's a, an insight into the focus of a Benyani. It's a, it's a beautiful way of putting it. You know, this, in other words, he's really good. He's the way he's supposed to be. The Rebbe was once asked on a different occasion about this same Bachar, what he thought of him. So he said, he's a Benyani periodically. He's a Benyani from time to time. But he was talking about Madrega Sabeni. Madrega Sabeni is an incredible measure of focus and being locked in. Midas Abenini is a very simple thing. Midas Abenini means very simply this. Can I control myself for 60 seconds? I think so. Do it. Midas Abenini is not a high level. Midas Abenini is simply saying, I know I have the ability to be a balabas of myself. I have the ability to master myself. When I think of me in terms of my life, or a week, or a month, or even a day, I say, forget it. I'm going to make mistakes. But if I reduce my life to now, I break up my existence into increments of, like we discussed last week, five minutes. Five minutes is doable. And the Altarebbe says, We should challenge ourselves to define our lives in small measurements of time. And we'll see that it's entirely realistic for us to be in control of ourselves and not to say, as we discussed last week, quote, I'm, I'm still a good Jew at heart. <coughs> In any case, this is called Midas Abeni. So the Alter Rebbe is not trying to frighten us away. Alter Rebbe is not trying to depress us. He's trying to be honest, which is probably the most important thing that the Tanya does. And the Alter Rebbe says, have higher expectations of yourself. Tell yourself, you know, you, if there's one thing in the world you could control and own, it's yourself. Pay attention to yourself and try to gain a little bit more mastery over yourself, which is, which is really what a Benyani is. Someone who's a master, someone who's in charge, someone who's in control of himself. And I think that, do we fail? Of course we fail. Are we perfect? I mean, I don't want to speak for a room full of tzaddikis and tzaddikim here, but I know one person in this room who's certainly <laughs> not perfect. But when we... When we Reduce, like I said, when we, when we look at our lives in terms of the present, we have much, much more control. I think it helps to always be well-rested, well-fed, to eat good food. <laughs> Everything, if, if all of the extraneous things in our lives are working out, we have much more focus. When you have focus, you have control. It's when you don't have focus, when you don't have control because you're tired or you're hungry, you're frustrated, you're upset. This is when we lapse, when we sin. And this is when we need self-control, discipline. But al Rebbe says, on a certain level, human beings could expect of themselves to be in control of themselves.
This is the summary of what we've done until today. Now we learn something new. This Benini, this uninspired person, yet uncompromised person, right? He doesn't have passion. He's not full of energy. Emotional, spiritual energy, which is the world of the tzaddik. And he's not compromised. Compromised, he doesn't give in. He doesn't sin, which is the world of the Rosh. The Benini <coughs> is in between those two. He doesn't have passion, but he doesn't sin. We're going to learn that there are three basic categories of Benini, three worlds of Benini. Within this category of uninspired and uncompromised, we're going to have three categories. And you'll see these three are going to become possibly five or six categories. We're going to split it up more. But the intention is of the next few classes, we're going to address different categories of Benini. Okay? And um, first I'm going to tell you what they are. Tonight we're going to do the first. Next week we're going to do the second. And with God's help, of course, the week after we'll do the third. The three categories of Benyanim are a person who's a Benyanim by nature. Which what I mean to say, a Benyanim by nature means a person who's a Benyanim without a struggle. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. This first category of Benyanim, the Benyanim without a struggle, is called in the Tanya, Loyavadai. He's a Benyani. With a Yetzir Hara, he's not fighting. Life's easy. How could life be easy and not be a Tzaddik? You'll see. The first category of Benyani is a Benyani, one who always does the right thing and never does the wrong thing. He doesn't have passion. He's uninspired. He doesn't have a struggle because of his nature. The second category of Benyani, which we're going to be discussing several weeks hence, is a Benyani because of the nature of his godly soul. Not his nature, but the nature of his godly soul. You have to come around. The third category of Benyani, which is the highest level of Benyani, which we're going to be discussing next week, is a person who's a Benyani because he uses his mind. The Moyach Shalat Alev Benyani, the mind over heart Benyani. So there's a three Benyani, and the intention is, the plan is, we're going to give each one a, a Monday. So tonight we're talking about the first category of Benyani, which is the lowest level of Benyani. A Benyani without a struggle. A Benyani without a fight. The Hebrew is <coughs> He's not serving God. Now, could you imagine having Yetzir Hara, never sinning, and you have no fight? I can't imagine. <laughs> to me, a Yetzir Hara means temptation. It means frustration, it means anger, it means desire, it means impatience, it means all kinds of things that are not good. Dr. Rebbe says, you should know, it's possible to have a Yetzirah and not have a fight. Okay? And, and it's very, very important that I explain to you why this is. Because the difference between a Benyani and Tzadik is not that the Benyani is fighting and the Tzadik isn't. It's a misnomer. You know, again, I, I've been in the business of teaching Tanya. And frequently people will say, well, the Benyan is fighting and the Tzaddik isn't fighting. That's not the difference. The Tzaddik is inspired and the Benyan is uninspired. The Altarebbe proposes that it's possible for you to be a Benyan and, uh, and not have a fight. In other words, you're not an inspired person. How does a Tzaddik know he's a Tzaddik? That he's passionate. <coughs> passionate about God. And not only passionate about God when he sits and meditates for an hour. Passionate about God all the time. And as I said to you earlier, the tzaddik who is passionate about God is automatically disgusted by anti-God things, by ungodly things. And these two things go hand in hand. 
Those who are in love with God hate evil. Those are not two possibilities. Those are two interdependent emotions. When you love somebody, you hate the people who hate them. If you love Hashem, you hate the people who hate Hashem. So the tzaddik's world isn't simply the fact that the tzaddik always does right things and never does wrong things and he doesn't fight. The tzaddik's world is, is an inspired world. You could be a Benini and have no fight and you're a Benini because you have no passion. If I had to put it to you in the most direct words, some people are Benyanim simply because they're so boring. It's like the eight hundreds of sleep. I don't know if you know too many boring people in this way. You know, most of us know what temptation is. But there are actually people who are simply not passionate people. And because they're not passionate people, they don't struggle. Some will say they don't live either. And it's probably true. But it's possible to be a Benini and not have a fight. It's, 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 it's a very flat existence. It's a very two-dimensional existence. But this concept exists. And the Al-Tarebbe addresses it at, as, his, as his initial point. Here you are with a Yetzir Hara. What's the proof that you have a Yetzir Hara? The proof that Yetzir Hara is that you don't love God. Because if you have no Yetzir Hara and if you have a Neshama, you have a godly soul, you automatically love God and hate evil. The fact that you don't love God and don't hate evil is a clear indication or clear indicator that you have a Yetzir Hara and there's no fight. Why is there no fight? Because somehow you are a dispassionate person. A, a person with, without those forces that challenge us. But you without those forces that challenge us, not because you've worked so hard, not because you transformed yourself. This is your nature. Some people by nature have tendencies, have traits that make certain things easier for themselves. And we'll talk about them in a moment. Go ahead. You see, there are two. What you said is absolutely true. There's no doubt about it. There are two judgments. There's God's judgment of us, and there's our judgment of us. What you said is absolutely true. Two people who achieved the same thing, and one worked harder. I mean, the judgment of Hashem is based on how hard we work, not necessarily about how much we achieved. But we're we're talking about a very very specific thing. Altareb wrote a book. It's called the Book of Intermediate, Sefer Shalbanyan. The design of this book is not to speak to holy people, not to speak to tzaddikim. It's to speak to regular people. But at the same time, he doesn't want to speak to regular people based on how regular people define themselves. He wants to speak to regular people based on how regular people should define themselves. In other words, based on the potential of the regular person. What a regular person could be and therefore should be. And the label that the Tanya revolves around is Benini. What's Benini? You never do anything wrong. But you don't have any inspiration. So Al-Tareb is now saying, we'll leave judgment to God. We'll leave reward and punishment to God. But let's talk about life. In other words, let's talk about people. We're not talking about people because we want to discuss gossip. We leave that for after the class and before the class and when we have the coffee breaks in the middle. Okay, but let's talk about people in terms of what people can achieve in their lives. The Alter Rebbe says, God made an interesting world. Right? What's interesting about God's world? No two of us are alike. 
we're learning in the Tanya these days, that trying to analyze the spiritual and emotional conditions of human beings are impossible because it's hamistadis, it's a mystery. You have ten Jews, you have ten worlds. The mitzvahs are the same, but our spiritual selves are very distinct, very, very different. So I want you to know, there are some people who are very good and have no fight. Now your point is well taken. They're not exactly the highest level of Jew. It's much better to have an incredible fight and win, right? It's not so good to have a fight and uh, be compromised. What a great word, huh? Compromise. <laughs> In other words, fail. So we're not talking here about judgment and reward and punishment. We're talking about the truth of the matter. It's possible to be a Benyamin, to have a Yetzirah heart and have no struggle. Now we always assumed that not having a struggle means a tzaddik. This is what I'm trying to clarify. Being a tzaddik is not about not having a struggle. Being a tzaddik is about having passion, being inspired. Some people have no passions, that means they have a Yetzirah Hara, and don't have any struggle. And al Rebbe says three things, and I want you to think about all of these three. Now, can I say I know people who have one of these traits? I think so. Can I say that I know people that have two of these traits? I doubt it. Can I say that I know people who have all three of these characteristics? Absolutely not. But if you are born with the following three tendencies, the following three natures, you could be perfect. In other words, never do anything that's wrong and never have a fight. Number one, masmid bilimude betive. You speak Hebrew. That means to say a bookworm in simple English. People who are naturally studious, naturally diligent, people who just love knowledge. You know people like that? I know a few people like that. What do we call them? Geeks. <laughs> and uh, Bill Gates once spoke to a group of teenagers says, respect geeks. You're going to probably end up working for one one day. Yeah. Um, people naturally studious. I, as a kid, I had a kid in my class, 10, 11 years old. He used to read encyclopedia like this and turn the page. And we were always convinced that he was showing off and he had no idea what he was reading until we tested him. He knew every word. and The kid's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And knowledge and books are as natural to him as, the ball, as a ball game is to us, or as food. It's, it's a nature. There aren't, you know, I don't know, that kind of worm is becoming less and less uh, popular. People whose nature is to be studious, it does not hard for them to study Gemara. It's their nature. The Altareva says that people who have this tendency <coughs> are called a Marashchera. Okay, I'll save the technical aspects of it. Marashchera means an introvert. People who are naturally studious also tend to have a personality, a tendency of being by themselves. They're not the kinds of people who like to be around other people. They're not so social. They're not so precocious. And you know what else? They're not so generous. Introverts, people like to be themselves, there's a series of characteristics. They're very controlling, they're very exact, they're always on time, everything is counted and measured. They're very controlled, they're very involved intellectually, and they're not very generous. Because the generous people are the people who can sit still, usually. Because the extroverts, there's no bookworm in them at all. So there's these different personality types. If a person is by nature, if a person is by nature studious, now, it doesn't make, it's not pious, it's not holy. If you are by nature studious, you didn't create your tendency, you didn't make yourself a, a learner. You know, there are people in this world who naturally 
don't like to study and they made themselves exceptional students, that's an achievement. That's an accomplishment. You know? But people for whom it's natural to study, it's not a big deal. It's who they are. I remember reading a, a chassid whose name was Shmedel Sasanke, Shmedel Batumet. He was a big rabbi, big girl, a big guy. He passed away in 1980. So he wrote an autobiography. It actually came out originally as articles. And when he died, his son published them as a book. And it, it, it's really like episodes in his life, you know, people that he met and things that he saw. But it turns out to be more or less an autobiography. It's very good. It's very Hasidish, a very high-tech book. He described walking into Labavish the first time at the age of 16. He was already then a seasoned yeshiva bachet with many years of solid learning under his belt. He walks into a certain little room and the yeshiva bachet davening, praying all day long. If he'd ever seen anything like this in his life, he'd have with a minion. But in Chabad, there were boys who literally davened for hours and hours and hours. And he describes two personalities. One is Shilim, and the other is David Arudaker. I'll, I'll save you the details because it's, it doesn't mean anything to you. These are just two people. He says, this fellow, David Arudaker, David Kivman, was by nature an introvert. He, was, he never talked to people. He just didn't need to. He was always by himself. <coughs> Brilliant. Incredibly intelligent. And he just loved knowledge. He would sit and day and night just eat up Torah, eat it up. So when he prayed, when he davened, he said, concentration was completely natural to him. The only difference between when he learned and when he davened was if his eyes were open or his eyes were closed. That was it. Because he just would lock in. You'd make noise near him, he wouldn't even hear you. He wasn't here. Shilim, by nature, was an extrovert. He was a happy, free, open, precocious, socially involved person. And he had worked incredibly hard to develop concentration. And he achieved unbelievable things. Davening in Chabad is all about concentration. He was an incredible great concentrator. I mean, they tell stories how people would walk by him and sit down and get up. The Rebbe once, the Rebbe came into the room where he was sitting in davening and he circled around him and he didn't, he didn't even see him. But when you watched him daven, you saw war. Because he wasn't naturally a concentrator. Concentration was something that he created himself. He made himself into a concentrator. And that's the Taich. <coughs> someone whose studiousness is, is a nature it's part of who they are as a person if you have that trait I guess studying Torah is not a big deal it's a heart is not going to stop you from studying Torah it's a heart that wants to learn too as long as the mind is engaged but you have two more characteristics Mitsunin betive a cold person most of us are drawn to certain temptations because we're passionate Passions create desires, lusts. A, mature, a cold person, they're just simply dispassionate. And again, how many people do you know like that? I don't know too many. But a person whose second characteristic is that they're simply not so passionate, they don't get excited about things, they're not so easily aroused and excited, has easier time with certain tests that most of us struggle with on a regular basis because they're simply not so easy, they're just not moved. Things don't get them. And the third characteristic is mechuser hergesh They don't get pleasure from things. They don't need good food because good food is not going to appeal to their palate any more than ordinary food. They don't need fine clothing. They simply don't get pleasure from material things. And there are such people too. Some people are studious. They like to learn. It doesn't make them dispassionate at all. Some people are dispassionate. And some people simply 
are not materialistic. A nice car doesn't mean anything. It just doesn't matter to them. The combination of these three characteristics is incredibly rare. I think we would all agree that to be both naturally studious and naturally dispassionate and naturally unmaterialistic by nature, we're not talking about working on it, by nature is incredibly rare. But God has created every possibility. You know, In the Abishta's world, every imaginable type of human being that could be healthy and otherwise has been. It's one of those things that says in philosophy, anything that could be, will be. And therefore, there are such people who combine these three characteristics. As Altareb, if you or if someone that you know happens to have these characteristics together, they could be a bainini. That means always do the right thing and never do the wrong thing. And there's no fight. There's no war. There's no struggle. They're just, just going along. I mean, I grew up I, in yeshiva. One of my yeshivas I was at, I had a particular teacher who I always used to think that this is, he was that person. Because he was... Do, it was Yiddish guy was just so easy for him. He was a big rabbi and a big time Chalchem. But you never saw him fight with himself until one time he explained to me how how much he loves coffee and how he has to fight with himself not to drink coffee. Not for <coughs> religious reasons, but because it's not healthy. <laughs> you know? Everybody's got their struggles. But to find a... If there is a person who combines these tendencies, these traits, you could be a good person, never do anything wrong, and there's no fight. But you're not a tzaddik. Why is there no tzaddik? There's no fire. You don't love God and you don't hate the opposite. You just, this is who you are. You're natural. This is who you are by nature. Your nature allows for you to be good. Your nature puts you in a place where you're not inclined, you're not disposed to do things that are not good. You're not fighting and you're not passionate. Okay? This is the first possibility. This is called layava, the Yerabainini, uninspired and uncompromised. And you're not fighting. And then the is the second thing. And this second thing is perhaps a tiny bit more realistic than the first. The first category of Layavada, the first type of uninspired and uncompromised person who's not fighting was born that way. But he has to have a very, very unique blend of character traits for that to be possible. The second one is simply a person who's developed habits repetitiveness, right? Many of us hate doing the same thing over and over again. Some of us have that tendency. We like habits. I mean, the truth of the matter is that most people will tell you that we're all creatures of habit. All living things like patterns and predictability and so forth and so on. But for some of us, it's more so than for others. Some people, hergel, habit, habituation, repetitiveness, nasateva, becomes your nature. If you fight with yourself, do the right thing, and you develop you know, pattern. You know, I have a student now who, uh, who's going through a little bit of a spiritual struggle. He said, I don't feel like I have any, I, I don't got the same passion I had six months ago or three months ago. So I told him, when you are lacking in passion, the key is consistency. Go to sleep at the same time, get up at the same time. When you're, in other words, when you're not motivated with power, you have to be motivated by consistency. Don't miss a night of sleep because that's when you fall, when you're weak. So I, I just asked him this morning, has it helped him? Has it affected it's helped him incredibly. He doesn't have a lot of bread, he doesn't have a lot of fire. But because he's so consistent about his life, it becomes easier to maintain, so to speak, that status quo, and it, it, it goes. So the Alphabet proposes it's possible 
Shalom. It's possible for a person to become a Benini by habit. Always the same schedule, always the same activities. Don't allow any change to derail you, to off, to to challenge you. And you can put yourself in a position where the constancy of your life, the predictability of your life, makes being a Benini, relatively speaking, easy. You're not fighting with yourself. There's no passion. Right? You're not a tzaddik. You're uninspired, though, and yet you're not compromised. And you've put yourself into a position of, of predictability. Always the same. Now, of course, a person like that, his biggest problem would be when something changes. Shabbos and Yom Tov is an incredible challenge for him because everything's got to be so predictable and so anticipated and so planned and so controlled and so forth. But the Alter Rebbe proposes a person could find themselves in a place that's called Loyavade. There's no struggle. And yet they're practically speaking perfect. First of all, because they have a certain series of characteristics that we articulated before. And second of all, because you can get accustomed to it. You can get used to it. Now one question remains outstanding. And that is, we've just explained that there is a Benini that's Loyavade. That means to say he has no struggle because of a, either because of a series of natural characteristics, masmid bilimude betive, and mitsunim betive, mechusan hergishana, and so forth, as we discussed before. So that explains why they won't do anything wrong, but they won't sin. But what's their motivation to tell the mitzvahs? What's their motivation to do the right thing? What's pushing them in that direction? Because you need a reason to be a yid. It's, in other words, it's one thing not to have any association with the opposite of Yiddishkeit. It's an entirely different thing to actually be motivated to do what says in the Torah. So the Alter Rebbe says the following. He says, every Jew has a neshama, has a godly soul. And the godly soul within every Jew has a natural tendency to do the will of the Abish. That's what it wants to do. And this tendency in the neshama is concealed. It's hidden. It's the concept of hidden love, which we're going to be discussing in Mitzvah Hashem in a couple of weeks hence. So every single Jew loves God because inside of themselves is a natural tendency towards Hashem, but it's not manifest, it's hidden. When a person does not have the distractions from temptation or laziness or, or hyperactivity, as it were, so the fact that they have a neshama that's hidden inside of themselves, that naturally loves Hashem, is a sufficient motivation to them to do what Hashem wants. In other words, in a Jew, as long as there's no reason for a Jew not to do the will of Hashem, they will do the will of Hashem. Because doing the will of Hashem within a Jew is connected to the very, very core, the very essence. Inside, we automatically want to do the will of Hashem. It's simply that it cannot be manifest because of distractions. Later on, the Altareb is going to say that you have to reveal this hidden love. But in this particular category of Bainani, that's Layavada, he's able to serve Hashem and never sin without a struggle. The motivation for serving Hashem is the Neshama in its hidden state. So the Altareb says, You were born with a soul. The soul naturally wants to serve Hashem because of your soul. You're in fact serving Hashem. And you're doing nothing to access that soul and reveal the soul. It's simply the soul as it is in its hidden state is sufficient to motivate you to do the will of Hashem. You are therefore called layavadi. You're not considered a servant of God. Even though you're doing what Hashem wants and you're doing what Hashem wants because of your neshama, but because you're not exercising any 
conscious uh, effort in affecting that the soul should affect your practical life, so using your neshama to serve him is considered effortless. And that's why it's called layavadi. And in the later chapters, the Altareb is going to discuss a person who is going to need to reveal this hidden love to overcome the Yetzirah and be able to serve Hashem practically. And that will in fact be called Avadi. That's considered work, a struggle, as opposed to Layavadi. So this becomes the first type of Bainani. It's a person who's a Bainani. It means he always does the right thing, never does the wrong thing, and he's not engaged in a war. He's a Bainani who doesn't have any struggles, has no passion. This is just who he is. And of course, as Liba, right? Liba? Mimi. Mimi. Said before, the point that you made was very, very credible, and that is, that's not exactly the highest kind of a Bainani. If a person is a servant of God, they do what they're supposed to, don't do what they're not supposed to. They have a Yetzirah and don't have a fight, we don't celebrate that. We all wish we had that problem. Could you imagine none of us had a hard time doing the right thing? Could you imagine none of us had a hard time not doing the wrong thing? Just by nature. It's our nature, you know? <laughs> we don't like food. We don't like clothing. We don't like this. We don't like that. You know the old joke? But a guy who comes to his doctor and says, Doctor, I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't do anything I'm not supposed to. You think I'm going to live long? So the doctor says, what for? The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, has a asiche where he actually says that he's not enamored with people who don't fight. In other words, some people don't fight with themselves because they don't mind doing the wrong thing. They don't mind sinning. Some people don't fight with themselves because they don't need to fight with themselves. It just goes easy for them. I'm sure you had one kid in your class who always did so well and it was so easy and you were so jealous of them, you hated them. How come it's so easy for you? And of course, they would always say, it's not easy for me. I go home and I study. And No, you don't have to study and all that other stuff. There are very few people who don't have to struggle. But the fact, at least in theory, those individuals whose lives are uninspired and they don't have a struggle, the Reb Satan says, I'm not in love with such people. Because we have to be alive. And one of the symptoms, one of the expressions of life, of life is movement, is that struggle, is that war. Tadik Yamar, another category. It's not their fault. Pardon? It's not their fault. It is, and you'll, see, in a moment. you'll see why. In a moment, we're going to get to that. Tzadikim are different. First of all, they were not necessarily born Tzadik. They fought to become Eved Tzadik. Second of all, as we discussed several weeks ago at length, Tzadikim are busy with other stuff. Everybody's got their own war. You know, they have wars on different levels. But for a Bainani, for a person to be in a status quo space, where they're always doing the right thing, never doing the wrong thing, there's no tension, there's no nervousness, there's no apprehension, there's no frustration, there's no push in their lives. They're a good person, they're going to go to Ganeidin, but they're not exactly the favorite person, because just as success is part of Yiddishkeit, so is struggle. And there's no struggle in their lives. So the question becomes, what are they supposed to do about it? So the Alter Rebbe says, and I'm putting it in my own words, nobody is ever justified in not fighting. Nobody can ever say, I have nothing to fight about. Everybody must fight. Tzadikim have their wars, their issues. We're not talking about tzaddik. You know, we also have the perfect tzaddik who's 
whose struggles have nothing to do with himself. His struggles have to do with his relationship with other people because within himself there's nothing to struggle with. But everybody's got to fight. If you're a Benyani and you're not fighting, you're doing something wrong. And of course the question becomes, well, what can, what can a person do if, if it's not hard? And the answer is, you must always go beyond your limits. And to going beyond your limits, there is no limit. In other words, if you are in a place that everything is smooth and controlled and without a struggle, enhance your life. Do more. How much more should you do? Till it hurts a little bit. And that's the sign of life. Nobody can say, I have nothing to struggle with. There's no such thing. If what you're doing doesn't require a test, test yourself. Push yourself beyond your limit. How much? A little bit. And the Al-Tarebbe quotes a Gemara. He brings a statement in the Talmud. Where the Talmud talks about this question that we're discussing tonight. Avade and loy avade. The Jew, the ordinary Jew who struggles versus the ordinary Jew who doesn't struggle. And he says, how do you explain the difference between these two personalities, these two characters? And he gives an interesting marshal. In the olden days, there was a trucking industry. But the trucking industry was not using trucks. They were not using steam engines. They were not using horse and buggies. They used donkeys. People had herds of donkeys, and the donkey can carry a, whatever it is, a boy saw, whatever it is, I don't know, 100 pounds, 120 pounds of weight. And they already know how much a donkey can carry, the average donkey's schlepping load. And that's what they made a living. People would come to them with things that needed to be carried from one place to another, and you would hire 10 donkeys, 20 donkeys, 30 donkeys, 50 donkeys, or of course, if you wanted to go longer distances, you would carry camels, and you would pay per donkey per day. And the Gemara says that the, the, the established norm for this trucking industry, for this donkey business, was 10 pounds, 40 mil. It is my belief that 40 mil is 40 miles, but uh, somehow that doesn't work. So we'll be conservative. 40 mil is probably around 40 kilometers. Okay, a mil is a tchum, 2,000 amas, 2,000 uh, arm, arm length from here to here. Let's say it's, it's 2,000, uh, 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 4 kilometers. So 10 pass is 40 kilometers. The, the average donkey professional, the average trucker who was leading a herd of donkeys, each one carrying a load of, let's say, 120 pounds, would go 40, 40 kilometers a day, 40 miles a day. And they would travel from sunrise to sunset. Now what if you were in a rush? And you need something to move from point A to point B. And at 40 kilometers a day, it'll take you five days. You couldn't wait five days. You wanted it done in four days. So you would ask them to travel faster or to travel longer, to start their day before sunrise, from the morning star, wherever it was. So you had to ask them to travel a little further. So they would travel instead of 10 parsa, 11 parsa. Instead of 40 kilometers, they, charge, they would travel 44 kilometers. That was already considered, uh, you know, overtime. And the halacha was that for those extra four kilometers, you paid double. In other words, if for 40 kilometers you paid $100, for 44 kilometers you paid $200. Why? Because you're expecting of them to go beyond the norm. You're asking them to go out of their limits. So the Gemara says, asking a trucker to travel 40 kilometers in a day is normal. 44 kilometers is so abnormal you pay double. That doesn't sound reasonable. You know, even double for overtime wouldn't be another $100. It would be, you know, $20 rather than $10. 
But the halacha was that they paid double because when you're asking somebody to do something which is beyond themselves, it's so frustrating, it's so extraordinary, you're asking something so much, you have to pay twice as much. Where do we have an example for this in our history? What happened in Egypt? What would happen in Egypt? They gave the Jewish people work, made them slaves. And the Torah describes the work they did as parach. Parach. Parach means unnatural work. It wasn't necessarily hard as much as it was unnatural. And the Gemara's expression is, they would give men women's work and it would give women men's work. That means that women had to work unnaturally hard physical labor. And the men were climbing the walls doing women's work. It's unnatural. And when you ask somebody to do something unnatural, it isn't simply that they're working. It, it's, 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 it, 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 it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. So the Gemara says that you become a worker, not when you work, but when you go beyond your norm, beyond your limits. So the Alta Rebbe says, it is true that there are people who can legitimately claim, I don't have to work. I have no struggle. The Abish they gave me either, I've acclimated myself, I've developed what's called Hergel Nasa Teva. I've accustomed myself to a certain kind of a lifestyle, which has made it, I'm sorry, natural for me to do right things, not to do wrong things. Or, I was born with a series of characteristics that don't require struggle. I'm naturally studious, I'm naturally cold, and I'm naturally unmaterialistic. And therefore, I'm always doing the right thing, I'm never doing the wrong thing and have no struggle. Says al but you're wrong in not having a struggle. Because there's no person who cannot find struggle. Go beyond your limit. How much? A tiny bit. If you go beyond your limit a little bit, it's the sign of life. The symptom, the indicator that you're alive is that there's frustration. You know, people who are always calm and always collected, everything's always wonderful, <laughs> something isn't right. A living human being, I'm not saying that we should have nervous breakdowns and smash windows, but the sign of a living human being is that there's tension. Tension not necessarily that comes from bad things. Tension that comes from work. Life is work. We're here to work. Now the Rebbe says, it's easy for you, make it hard one little bit harder than what you're accustomed to and you're alive. If you don't add to your life that one little bit, you're a perfect Jew, you go straight to Gan Eden. But I have no energy. It's a tight to Gan Eden. It's Gan Eden, it's dead. Gehenna is more alive than Gan Eden. For a person who struggles, you have to push this. I'll get to you in a, if you don't mind in a second. How much you have to do a little bit more than what you're accustomed to. And of course, the second point is like everything else in life, if you push yourself beyond your limit a little bit, eventually your limit expands. And then you push yourself a little bit more, and you push yourself a little bit more. And the sign of life is that little increase. And the Altrebbe gives a, a Jewish illustration for this. The Talmud tells us, the Gemara says, that in the times of the Talmud, there, was, there were no, obviously there was no printed books. The printing press was invented only about 500 years ago, a little more. No, 500 years ago. Maybe a little less even. But in addition, there was a religious prohibition against writing down the oral Torah. They were not allowed to write down the, what's now called the Mishnah and the Gemara, the Talmud. So it was all memory, it was all oral. So people who came to study in the yeshiva, they would join a group of students, and they would hear a class, and in those days a class was a series of laws, and they would all go away from the class and they would review each thing that they learned 
a hundred times. Now, in America, we review something three times, you're bored out of your mind. Twice is too much, and three times is impossible. Four times is a guaranteed nervous breakdown. But they lived in a different age. They didn't, their middle initial was not D for distracted, <laughs> like we have. Um, so a hundred times, they review everything a hundred times. Of course, A, they never forgot it. B, they remembered it in a very exact way. It was always very, very exact. But so the Gemara says, if you repeat your learning a hundred times, you're called layavade. That's not a called a struggle. It's normal. If you study it 101 times, one more time than what is normal, that makes you alive. That's your avade. The fact that you're pushing yourself a little bit beyond your own comfort zone, you're not allowing your identity as a person, as a Jew, to be defined by a status quo. And you appreciate the idea that the sign of life is that I'm growing. Then you call the Evadol And if you do it only a hundred times, as incredible as that sounds to us, because that was normal, that was the habit, it's called Layavadi. Go ahead. Is that, is that why you started off the conversation by, for the lesson by saying that you, when you get twice as much by doing that 10% more? Of course. Of course, because it's a sign of life. And there's an interesting illustration for this. This is a, sort of a, uh, a philosophical analogy, but it'll, it'll make the point uh, quite clearly. Um, in, in, in the laws of Shabbos, in the laws of Shabbos, there's all kinds of things you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. In general, the law says that there are 39 categories of work you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. Lama Tetz I don't know how familiar you are with this, but just take my word for it, there's Lama Tetz There's 39 things you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. And they go into the broad categories. Everything that has to do with baking and cooking, everything that has to do with butchering meat, Everything that has to do with building and sewing. And the, 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 the Mishnah that enumerates the 39 things. Now, the one Shabbos goes in patterns. The first, like 10 or 11, have to do with agriculture. Then there's a whole bunch that have to do with, with livestock and working leather and so forth. One of the malachas is a very strange malach. It's called makabapatish, which means literally banging a hammer. What does makabapatish mean? It means very simply this. They used to make pots out of earthenware, out of clay. You can, they still make pots out of earthenware, although today we make pots out of other things as well. But in preparing a pot that's made from earthenware, you need special clay. It needs to be mixed properly. You have to know how to do that. And then it has to be baked in an oven. The oven, I think it's called a kiln. K-I-L-N. It's a special oven that gets very, very hot. And the, the pot or the dish bakes in this oven at a very high temperature, and it becomes hard, but not brittle. You know, when you make, take clay and you make it into a vessel, you can also make it into a pot. But if the temperature is a little hot, a little cold, it, it cracks, has no strength. So by baking it, they made it <coughs> strong. When these pots or dishes came out of this oven, the kiln, there's processes that have to be done after it's taken out of the oven. One of the things they do is they take a hammer and you give it a zetz. Give it a, a smash. Somehow that bang affects the um, the uh, the strength of the the pot or the dish. That develops a certain plasticity or or toughness that it shouldn't break easily. And it's part of the program. You take it out of the oven and you bang it. I don't know if you bang it right away or shortly thereafter. But if you don't hit the pot or the dish 
after it's removed from the kiln, it has a tendency to break easier. So the fact was that people who did this for a living, people who sold earthenware for a living, knew this. You take it out of the oven and you give it a zetz, give it a clap. Pardon? Resonance. Is that what it's called? Resonance? I, I am totally unfamiliar with a hammer. According to Jewish law, if you hit a pot, it's desecration of the Shabbos. Why? What's the big deal? Because you're finishing something. If you take a hammer and you bang it against the pot, you're meshuganer. That's about it. You're not mechal Shabbos. But when you take a pot that's coming out of an oven, that's going to be ready for market, with giving it a clap, it becomes a maloch. In other words, makabapatish is not allowed to be done on Shabbos, not because what you're doing, but because what you're accomplishing. Hitting a pot's no big deal, but hitting a pot that by doing that, you're completing its function, its ability to be used, it becomes a malacha because you're finishing it. And there are a lot of weird illustrations of makabapatish. And one of them is as follows. There were people who made a living selling psilim, wicks. I don't know how many people in Brooklyn make a living selling wicks because they sell an awful lot of wicks to make a living. But in those days, you know, in the shtetl, the rabbi, the rov, had a lot of odd jobs because the position didn't pay him. One of the many things rabbi used to do was sell wicks. That means to say he took cotton, they would spin it, and it doesn't require rocket science to spin a wick, and then they would sell it. There were standard sizes, whatever it was, six inches or eight inches or ten inches, wicks, psilim. And of course, people had lanterns, so they needed wicks, and people made a living selling wicks. You didn't get rich from it, but you made a few pennies. The way these wicks were sold was that after the wick was prepared, you would take a candle and you would singe the edge of the wick. You would make it black. The person who sold wicks only sold wicks with black tips. In other words, the sign that a wick was ready for market is that one edge of the tip had been singed, had been burned. The idea is that when you light a wick that was already lighted once, it'll catch fire easier, and it'll burn better, and it'll draw the uh, fuel better. This was the procedure. You made wicks to cotton, you spun cotton into wicks, but before you put them on the shelf, for sale you would burn the edge of the wick. So if a person burns an edge of a wick on Shabbos, he's high from Akabapatr. According to Jewish law, you're not obligated on Shabbos for destruction. Destroying something in a fire doesn't obligate you. Because you didn't do anything constructive. It's destruction. Soysim is only on Manas Livnis. For somebody to be liable on Shabbos, for destruction is only when the destruction has a constructive purpose. Burning a wick is in effect destroying it. What's wrong? The answer is because before you burnt it, there was a piece of cotton. By burning it, it became a wick. It isn't what you did, but what you achieved. So I want you to think about this analogy in Judaism, in life. We're all a wick. The, the light, the fire, is the neshama, is Hashem. The fuel is Judaism. And then there is the tip, the tip of the wick. The tip of the wick is where the fire meets, meets us. And the tip of the wick has to be black. That blackness is our frustration. That blackness is our spiritual, our human tension. That blackness is our metach. That blackness is our war, our struggle, our labor, our frustration. And everybody needs to have a wick that's singed. For some people, that's not an issue at all. I mean, we're constantly struggling. We're always frustrated. And we have incessant struggles that never seem to some side. But if there is a person, if God forbid you have this dilemma, and we all wish we had this dilemma, 
that life just goes smooth sailing. They just do what they have to. They don't do what they're not supposed to because they <laughs> share this combination of characteristics. Those three things I mentioned earlier, they're not justified in saying, I don't fight because I have no reason to. The Rebbe says, pick a fight. I don't mean on a playground. Find something. Fight with yourself. What could it be? Learn 101 times. You learn 10 hours a day, learn 10 hours in 5 minutes. You know, you know what's a great example of picking a fight? Just speak a little less. You like to talk? Don't talk so much. <laughs> you like to offer opinion? Don't offer your opinion. It's a simple example where a person can take upon themselves a fight about matters of Yiddishkeit. And the Rebbe says, This man without a struggle, this woman without a struggle, this person without a struggle is a good Jew. They're going to go straight to Ganeidin. But the Ganeidin is going to have a problem with the eating. There's no passion because there's no struggle. There's no war. Now the Rebbe says, you have to find the war. And therefore the, the conclusion is that if a person finds themselves in a situation where they have no struggles, they must create for themselves struggles. And if they don't do so, they'll be a good person who's not alive. This is category one. This is the first type of Bainani. In Mitzvah, next week we'll talk about the second type of the Bainani. And in Mitzvah, the Bainani we're going to talk about next week is, the, is really the ideal Bainani, the highest level of Bainani. A Bainani whose condition, whose status, whose level of Bainani has been accomplished through the employment of the mind, the brain and the heart. And two weeks from now, Mitzvah, we'll talk about a third kind of a Bainani who's not using his mind and his heart, but at least he's using his soul. But don't worry, next week and the week after we'll talk about people who have no problem with struggle, they're struggling all the time. Tonight's Bainini is the Bainini without a struggle and the message of the Alter Rebbe is if you have nothing to fight about, pick a fight. Not with other people, but with your own self. Okay? Doesn't matter. Huh? Doesn't matter if you're going to lose. Doesn't you... matter if you lose, right? First of all, it doesn't matter if you lose. Second of all, it is all about that. Right? It's, it is all about being in a place where you could possibly lose and not lose. And if you lose, you try again. Then you're not a pain. Why not? Because if you lose, you lose. What was the loss? The loss was you're supposed to learn 101 times and you only learned 100. <laughs> well, success, yeah. That's what we're talking about, right? Okay. <clears throat>